Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. We're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy, not a gender. It's a new year. Yes, January 1st, today. Uh, yeah. Happy New Year, everybody. Thank you for spending 2022 with us. We're looking forward to some more great things in 2023. Before we get into it, I just want to, I wanted to shout out that if you don't follow us on Instagram at baddad.raddad, we did make a cool little post about our top 10 favorite, uh, our top 10 favorite and what we think are the raddest films of 2022 uh, over there on our Instagram. So highly recommend checking it out because we're pretty cool. <laughs> we are pretty cool. I must say, though, we didn't see every movie we wanted to see. This is true. Uh, Women Talking hasn't been available to us. We really wanted to see that. I, not that I think it would have been in our top 10, but we wanted to see The Fablemans and we didn't get a chance to. So, of course, it's our favorite films of what we managed to see. Yeah. And I also want to say our ethos here is like disagreeing is cool. So totally fine if you don't like some of the movies that are in our top 10 or there's ones that you would have put in there. In fact, would love to hear from you. What would you put in your top 10? Yeah. Comment on the post. Totally. Okay. It's a, it's a big week. We were, we were both on holidays this week so we had a lot of time on our hands to watch a lot of movies so we watched six macaronis this week yeah let's get into it i'll kick it off we went to our favorite place in the world metro cinema for the showing of the action drama sci-fi from 1982 it's blade runner but this time it's blade runner the final cut uh we'll get into (laughs) a little bit about that but it was directed by ridley scott it was written, well, the screenplay was written by Hampton Fancher and David Webb, Pe- Webb Peoples. And uh, Philip K. Dick wrote the novel that this was based on called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? It stars Harrison Ford as Deckard, 
Rutger Hauer as Batty, Sean Young as Rachel, Edward James Olmos as Gaff, M. Emmett Walsh as Bryant, and Daryl Hannah as Pris. The synopsis, a Blade Runner must pursue and terminate four replicants who stole a ship in space and have returned to Earth to find their creator. Man, it sounds so nerdy. <laughs> it uh, is. <laughs> um, yeah, nice. This was uh, this was my first time seeing it in the theater. You too? Definitely, yeah. Nice. Uh, what do you think of Blade Runner, the final cut? People love this movie. Yeah, yeah. People love the new one too. Um, you showed this to me, well, it must have been like at least three years ago, if not longer. Mm-hmm. And I didn't love it the first time I saw it. Yeah, I have yeah. to be honest. I was a little bored. Mm-hmm. But I've gotten better at watching movies and particularly better at watching like visually focused movies. As I've mentioned on the show, I like character and emotion based movies. And I do think that this movie is kind of that. But the emotion it's going for. I don't know. What emotion do you think Blade Runner is trying to accomplish? Um, I, I don't know. Maybe it's not emotion focused. It is character focused. But it's just kind of like vibes. Yeah, like walking out of the theater, like we went and saw it with our good friend Alex. Like, and we all just kind of stood there and we're just like, yeah, this is very much falls in the category of nothing happens but the vibes. Yeah. Um, I mean, yes, stuff happens. But for the most part, you're just looking at stuff that's cool to look at. Yeah. Um, so that was more enjoyable in the theater. Yeah. And more enjoyable having seen the movie. Like when you showed it to me the first time and you showed me the final cut. So that's the only one I've seen. Mm-hmm. I didn't get the ending and you had to explain it to me. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. But like, how was I supposed to understand that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so knowing that and knowing kind of that ambiguity, I was able to read that into the whole film. And that was interesting. Now, before you showed me this movie a handful of years ago, I had already read the book because mm-hmm. I'm smart. Yeah, small, small. And I read books. <laughs> um, I didn't really remember the book, though, to be honest. But I think the title is so kick-ass. Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? What a great title. Yeah. I love that. And, and not to poo-poo Blade Runner because Blade Runner, I think, is a very cool name. But it doesn't come from the book. No. But it is cool. <laughs> it is cool. What I remember most about the book is that there was a much bigger emphasis on the fact that there was also replicant animals. Mm. Um, and that like having an animal, a real animal, was really difficult, expensive. Um, which is like definitely in the background of this film. There's like a part where someone's like, You think I could I would work here if I could afford a real snake? Yeah, like, yeah. There's a quick line like that, or like, is that owl real or a replicant? Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, I don't really remember if the book and the movie are that aligned. I think that they've got some pretty different focuses, mm-hmm. I think. Um, so you showed this to me a long time ago. Do you, like, really love this movie? Well, I remember, like, my sort of path into seeing this movie was I, uh, when I was in high school, my film media teacher classic had this poster up in his classroom. Like, the one that... The typical poster with like yeah. all the faces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, he, I remember he would say, he said often, Blade Runner was his favorite film of all time. It would be. And he taught me to. It's like, it's just slam dunk like film enthusiasts' favorite film. <laughs> but, yeah. um, so like, I remember this was kind of during the time where I started digging into you know, films that just weren't mainstream films, but just kind of starting to branch out my 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 knowledge about film. 
And I remember thinking just based on what he kept saying about and reiterating about Blade Runner was that this must be top tier cinema. Like this must be just one of the best of the best. And I remember seeing it for the first time. I think same as you, I've only ever seen, I think, I, no, actually, I think I see, I think the first time I saw the director's cut and then in subsequent viewings, I've seen the final cut and I remember seeing it and I didn't get it but I liked it. You liked the vibes. Yeah. The vibe, the vibes were totally there. I I think kind of same as you. Like I, I had to do digging into what it was about, what it was trying to say, what some of the meaning was behind it. And, you know, I watched YouTube videos, read articles on it. Um, And since then it's like, it's not one that I want to revisit all the time. Like it's not one of my favorite films of all time, but I can respect what's there for it. And did you have you only seen the final cut? Uh, I saw the director's cut first, and then I've since then in all my subsequent viewings. They're similar. Final cut. Um, it's like it's pretty similar. I honestly can't remember what exists within the director's cut that does or does not. Let exist me tell you all the cut. different versions that exist. Would you like to know? Yeah, let's let's get into this because okay. there's there's so many different versions, yeah. and the theatrical version is kind of known for being the worst version of the film. Which is strange. I saw somebody on Letterboxd say, seeing a person's rating of Blade Runner, it is entirely appropriate to ask which version of Blade Runner they saw. Yeah. Because right? if you've only seen a certain version and you think it's amazing and somebody else has only seen a different version and think it's terrible, both of those things might be true. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's a work print prototype that was shown in 1990 and 1991 to test audiences. It's an unofficial version. There was a San Diego sneak preview shortly after that, which had three scenes plus the original theatrical version. Then there was the U.S. theatrical version, which Wikipedia tells me contains the voiceover and the happy ending. There was the U.S. broadcast TV version in 1986, which cut out a lot of the violence, sex, any swearing, that kind of stuff. There was director's cut in 1992, which was actually made by Michael Eric and was not made by Ridley Scott. And then in 2007, the final cut was created, which was made with by Ridley Scott, and it was the only version that he had full artistic control over. See, and like that kind of coincides with. So maybe I'm lying. Maybe I have only seen the the final cut because that would probably be why Film Media Teacher was going on and on about Blade Runner because around 2007 out, yeah. is when the final cut would have would have come out, and yeah. that's when we were in that class. Yeah, I wasn't, but you were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, it's interesting. Apparently, Ridley Scott was horrible to work with. On on this film? On this film. Harrison Ford said it was the most one of the most frustrating films he's ever made because of the grueling shoot, the constant changes that didn't end up helping in the box office, and he didn't get along with Ridley Scott. And like people have said, I literally, that they thought Harrison Ford would kill Ridley Scott. <laughs> um, yeah, I think he was just pretty auteur-y. Um, and people had a really tough time working with him. Yeah. I mean, I kind of get that vibe from Ridley Scott. It also was his idea board. to have that assaulty scene and other people were like, can we not do that? Yeah. And that scene does not hold up. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty ridiculous. I mean, like getting, getting into the film a little bit more, like I think that Harrison Ford and Sean Young in this, in this film are pretty babely. Oh yeah. Both big of time. them. Yeah. Um, and I think that there is an interesting story to be told by both of them, but but then it's always just, yeah, derailed by this one very assaulty scene between them that is unnecessary. 
and it, it's just it's weird it kind of comes out of left field a little bit um and considering he finalized his cut in 2007 like it's not like we can blame it on the 80s as much yeah you know like he yeah. still wanted that scene in there in 2007 and didn't want to like cut it in a different way um what does really impress me about this film, watching it a second time and seeing it in the theater, is how good it looks. Mm-hmm. Like, it just is a marvel to look at. Now, it's that that type of futuristic look where you're like, I hope the future doesn't look like this. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Where everything feels a little, like, grimy and dark. And, like, yes, there's a lot of technology, but the technology doesn't seem awesome. Yeah. It's less of it's less it feels less like people are living their lives and more like people are just trying to survive day yeah, to day. Yeah. And even the like aesthetic conveys that. Yeah. But the aesthetic is so well executed. Did you know that they didn't use a lot of visual effects? Yeah. Like I've seen like behind the scenes stuff. Notably the the opening scene when we're kind of doing that slow pan in on Los Angeles and there's like all of the buildings mm-hmm. and, and all of the like fire kind of being shot out and stuff. Yeah. I and it shows too, because I feel I mean, we watched a nineties sci-fi film later in the week, and I feel like so much of the visual effects in that kind of date the film. Yeah. And I didn't feel that as much watching Blade Runner. Like there's no. there were a few moments where I was like that oh, this like doesn't hold up now or this doesn't work. Like it it's still pretty clean. And so they mostly use miniatures and paintings, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Yeah, and it's something that allows it to continue to be effective to this day. It's what we talked about when we did our deep dive on gremlins, right? Mm-hmm. Using the puppets and the animatronics make that film still exciting and accessible and believable in a way that if they had used CGI or visual effects in the eighties, probably people wouldn't want to watch it anymore Mm -hmm. or they'd watch it to laugh at it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, totally. And then the other thing on top of that, just that helps with the vibes or is the soundtrack by Vangelis. 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 Oh yeah. It's just, it's very atmospheric, but it it has that eighties synth wave vibe that i really love it yeah Yeah. yeah. um and it just kind of perfectly encapsulates this world and and the overall vibe and tone that the film is going after and it just that's that's kind of the that's the uh cherry on top i think i would really like to talk to somebody who loves blade runner because i don't think i quite get why like i don't think i quite understand why this would be someone's favorite movie of all time but i do think it's a good movie and i do like it yeah, like this, like I said, um, this isn't a movie that I would say that I love, and I'm, I agree with you on that. And I, yeah, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't pop this in every day or every week. Like this is not a desert island no. <laughs> film at all. But I agree with you. Like I, I'd be curious to hear from somebody, like what it is. Like is it, and is it the film, or is it tied up in some sort of like other like emotional connection to the film? Like, what is it that just makes it kind of a resounding? This is my favorite film of all and time. And with all these different versions, that makes it so complicated too, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's kind of a tricky film to talk about. Um, yeah, now having seen it in the theater, I think that's kind of the only way I want to see it. Yeah, no, I get a little too sleepy when I watch it at home. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. like mm, the couch, comfy. Yeah. No, I I agree. 
I also think this would be a really great film to watch on a rainy day. Yeah, it's it's very much that because it's, it's I feel like it's always raining in this movie. And we saw it on Boxing Day, so not quite the vibes, but mm-hmm. um, I would uh, love to see this on a rainy, rainy day. So yeah. maybe I will watch it at home on a rainy day. Yeah. And we've only seen Blade Runner 2049 once, and this made me want to revisit that as well. Um, just because, yeah, it's kind of, if you're going to spend time in this world, might as well like do it kind of back to back. Yeah. So it'd be kind of cool if like Metro or whoever did like a double feature of this. And the yes, and Aplex will do that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do. There is something about this that I find really compelling from a like cyborg perspective. I really am interested in the idea of like human. What's human? Mm-hmm. Right. And at what point do we stop extending our compassion or like the right to life to a living thing? Mm-hmm. Not talking about baby stuff, talking about animals, talking about, um, yeah, that idea that if we get sophisticated artificial intelligence, at what point do we recognize that as its own living thing? Right. Mm-hmm. And I do think this film, by having it be, the, the replicants are so difficult to figure out if they are human or replicants starts to really ask that question. Um, I love the uh, academic manifesto. It's called a cyborg manifesto um, by Donna Haraway published in 1985. And it is so good. Um, she also does a lot of work on like animal stuff. And I was obsessed with this in university. So Blade Runner does really pair well with looking at that idea of the cyborg and, mm-hmm. and particularly like what is human and what isn't and, and where are our boundaries around that. And when we put those boundaries in place, what does that do to the idea of freedom, to a person's own right to bodily autonomy? Um, yeah. Well, it's just this thing too of like humans creating something to perform a certain job or a certain task and giving them, giving them, giving those things life or giving them personality or giving them their own sort of characteristics or whatever that is. And then in, in the case of this world going too far and then having to or feeling the need to pull back on that or rescind on anything, any of that work and not and discounting the fact that this is now life beyond their control mm-hmm. or anything like that and it's just it's a it's that dangerous way of thinking i mean like even you know today with all of the ai stuff that's coming out which i think we just need to cool it <laughs> cuz <'Cause laughs> hot take <laughs> if, if you've watched if you've watched blade runner if you've watched terminator movies ex machina like we need to chill <laughs> and it and it's I mean, we see it in all of the AI art stuff that's coming mm-hmm. out, right? Like the, it right now, it's there's this huge conversation that's going on about what belongs to us now, you know, because AI is pulling the, it's pulling the, insp- I don't know if inspiration is the right word, but it's it's pulling from existing art, from existing artists. And those artists aren't being compensated or paid or recognized when this new art, this AI generated art is being created. So it's kind of like we we push it so far that we start kind of affecting ourselves. And then 
I don't know. I feel like it can, in the in the case of Blade Runner or in these films, it can start getting dangerous or it can start getting... But so, dangerous for the cyborgs or the replicants. And like I, when I watch these films or like I really liked this TV show called Humans mm-hmm. that was on for a while um, or the book uh, Clara and the Sun, uh, I think that's what it's called by uh, Kazuo Ishiguro is like it, it explores that as well being from the cyborg or being from the replicant or whatever term we want to use um, from their perspective and they want the right to life and they have emotions and they have feel. I mean, even look at something like um, interstellar. Like, did we not all like what is, what was his name? TA like the, the little robot. Oh, Tars. Yeah. Like, like, you know, we watch these things and we have feelings and emotions and care for these creatures um, not creatures, I don't know, machines. Mm-hmm. And at what point do we acknowledge that they have a right to life? Yeah. It's it's a really it's a really interesting concept. And I think in a sense, then I like Blade Runner from that abstract, um, almost academic ability to ha- how it allows me to think about the ideas of cyborgs versus humans and where those lines start to cross and blur. Mm-hmm. Almost more than I enjoy watching the film itself. Although I do think the film is good. And I think it's 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 a vibe. Yeah. No, I 100% agree with that. Yeah. So I think, you know, obviously not one of our favorite films, but it is one that we'll return to time, time and time again. Um, time and time again? Every once in a while. Yeah, there you go. Uh, how does it make you feel? It, a bleakness for the future. Yeah. It doesn't make me feel great about potentially where we could head in the future. Yeah. You? Um, I agree with that, but it also makes me happy to blissfully revel in the glorious 1980s sci-fi vibes for a couple hours. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Our next movie. So we went and saw The Whale. It's a 2022 drama film uh, directed by Darren Aronofsky and written by and based on the play by Samuel D. Hunter. Do you know what else he's written? No. He he was a he was a staff writer on the show Baskets. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I like Baskets a lot. We never yeah. finished it, but I do like it. If you haven't heard of this film, this is the cinematic return of Brendan Fraser as the lead character Charlie. Uh, Sadie Sink plays his daughter Ellie. Ty Simpkins plays Thomas. Hong Chow plays Liz, and Samantha Morton plays Mary. The synopsis is a reclusive a reclusive English teacher attempts to reconnect with his estranged teenage daughter. So before seeing The Whale, we were a little unsure about whether we wanted to see it or not. We had a lot of trepidation going in, and we had kind of been keeping a pulse on different folks' opinions of it, and it's very divisive. Mm-hmm. Um, both just whether people like it or not. Like many people saying this is their favorite film they've seen this year, their favorite film they've seen of all time. Uh, many people who don't want to see the film um, – many people who saw it and didn't like it. And so we were like, we're going to try and keep an open mind, but we're aware of these discourses going in. And when we saw the first trailer made us even more wary of seeing it, but we were of the mindset that how can we meaningfully participate in the conversation if we haven't seen the film? Um, And so we did end up seeing it. What did you think of the whale? Yeah. Like you said, like a big part of me wanting to see it. Yeah. I was just wanting to be able to add to the conversation around this film thoughtfully um and you know obviously by seeing it to be informed um i mean something i'll say and the thing that 
is kind of across the board getting the most positive attention about this film are the performances from the actors. And I mean, I grew up with Brendan Fraser. Like I love freaking Encino man. I love George of the jungle. I love like monkey bone. I've never seen monkey bone. Oh, I have <laughs> um, bedazzled. I've seen bedazzled and uh, the mummy freaking love the mummy. I hate the mummy. <laughs> Um, and I thought like Sadie Sink, I love her in Stranger Things. I thought Stranger Things 4 was a, a big, a big highlight of what her powers are. Mm-hmm. And then Hung Chow. I mean, I really loved her in the menu. I thought she was great. Yeah, she was one of my favorite parts of that movie. And then I like a lot of the buzz around this movie kind of is, you know, aside from Brendan Fraser, it's around her performance mm-hmm. and what she brings to the film. My biggest concern going into this film was knowing what it was about was it being all about spectacle Mm -hmm. and how it was going to handle um just kind of the the idea and the politics around the um the character of charlie and the character charlie being a, a morbidly obese person and you know how big of a point that was going to be on the plot and were they going to exploit that just to just to be kind of titillating and i was kind of i feel like i was kind of right in my concern to a degree in this film like i there were there were points where i've like where i felt like there was there was a few sequences i'm like this feels a bit gratuitous and i i was found myself struggling of like does this need to be happening right now is it is it important to the character and the the point of the character and the arc of the character that some of these sequences be present or is it is it taking a step too far and and i was i found i found myself challenged with that throughout the film yeah it is challenging i saw um a review on letterboxd where someone said that they feel the film itself is not necessarily making any specific commentary on Charlie's body, but that it's how a viewer responds to it that says more. And yeah. and in some ways I don't disagree with that. Um, so in some of those moments where you felt uncomfortable or I felt uncomfortable, is that the film or is that us? Right. That's the question where it becomes difficult for me is that Charlie's body, like as a fat man seems to be about symbolism less mm-hmm. than about a human who lives a life in this body. Right. For me. Um, And I really want to emphasize again that we welcome and love that people respond to different pieces of art in different ways. And I know there's people who really like this film and it really resonated for them. And I don't want to take that away from them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I enjoy hearing like what, when somebody feels differently about a film or thinks differently about a film than me, I like that we all don't feel the same way about everything. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think where it becomes complicated for me is it isn't a there's like a term that is used a lot in the literary world, own voices. Mm. Um so like when you're writing from your own experience, even if it's a fictional story. And Darren Aronofsky and to my understanding, uh, Samuel D. Hunter are not people who live in fat bodies. Mm-hmm. And this just it seems so much about like the metaphor mm-hmm. <laughs> more than it seemed about the human. And I struggled with that. Um, Roxane Gay is a writer I really like, and she does a lot of like cultural writing. And um, she has an article on the New York Times called Cruel Spectacle. 
mm. about this film and, and she is a fat woman like that's how she identifies but it's behind a paywall so i couldn't read it yeah um, i really wanted to to get like a sense of like you and i this isn't our story either we mm-hmm. we don't it becomes really tricky to talk about because who am i to tell somebody who can relate to charlie in a way that i can't yeah. that this film is problematic i'm that's not my place to say that yeah but it also isn't anybody's duty to like say that to everybody else so it's just yeah. it's really tricky mm-hmm. what i do want to talk about is that the synopsis for this film is a reclusive english teacher attempts to reconnect with his estranged teenage daughter that is the byline for this film it has nothing to do with his body yeah for many years a handful of years i didn't talk to my dad mm-hmm. by my own choice you are currently not talking to your dad by your own choice yeah this movie should connect with us yeah Oh, because yeah. Ellie doesn't have a relationship with her dad and then he wants her back in his life. And that was the that was the biggest draw for me. Yeah. Like after, you know, the concern about spectacle, it was like, oh, but this should be in theory a slam dunk for us with dad or like parent child. This stuff. should be this should be resonant for us based on what the film says it's about. That part of the film did not work for me and I didn't no. find it believable. And I felt it overly simplified and reductive Mm -hmm. personally as someone who had a father who was not unlike Charlie in different ways. Like I had a dad who made really bad choices and the choices were harmful and he felt bad about them, but wasn't good at taking accountability. Mm -hmm. Um, And he didn't do things maliciously and he didn't do things with intent to harm, but harm was caused nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And so me and my siblings, but I'll talk just about myself, made intentional choices about like the boundaries we were going to put around our relationship with him. Right. And I was a, you know, my brother was a teenager. I was a young adult when we kind of made the choice to not see him for a while. So, you know, not unlike Ellie's age at the time. And I just found it so oversimplified the way that her character and her like relationship with her dad was depicted. Yeah. And I just, I just couldn't buy into it for that reason. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally felt the same way. Um, it, it loses just a lot of its subtlety and deeper. And because of that, yeah. it, it also loses a deeper emotional exploration f- for me, at least it just didn't work. And the way that it, it kind of progresses and then where it ends up at the end of the story, this relationship between uh, Charlie and Ellie, it just kind of reminded me at the very end that a 24 who was the producer on this film, they told their best parent child stories (laughs) already this year in after sun and everything everywhere all at once. Yeah. Which are just, they were experts in subtlety in deeper emotional connect- connectivity and i mean those are films we've mentioned multiple times throughout the year because they spoke to us on a personal level in their own ways and well, and also like looking at something like after sun which i think is actually exploring a lot of the same ideas here yes but from the daughter's perspective mm-hmm. and in the case of charlotte wells this is an own voices story because she's exploring her relationship with her dad through the character of sophie And even within that, the film, through Charlotte Wells' direction and writing, acknowledges the limits of trying to understand someone who's not us, Mm -hmm. right? And so this film doesn't try to do that. 
Uh, Richard Lawson, who's a writer for Vanity Fair, I think said this in a way that perfectly says what I would want to say. So he said in his review, the film is, quote, meant to be a poignant consideration of guilt, sexuality, religion, and remorse. But, quote, we really only know that because the movie shouts it at us. That's well put. Yeah. Yeah. So I just felt like, so here's where it gets a little complicated for me, too. I think this probably would be a pretty good stage play. Yeah. Where, like, we have different expectations when we look at any art, right? If we go into a film knowing it's a horror film, we don't have the same expectations of it as going into a period piece drama, right? Like, we we go in with a certain understanding of how we will need to suspend our disbelief before going into a film, before going into like an avatar film, right? Mm-hmm. You kind of know a little bit what you're getting into. When you go to a stage play, you know it's going to be loud. <laughs> like, you know it's going to have to be because it's in a contained space, because it's a quick runtime, because the people are right in front of you. A lot of the time, the dialogue does have to be really obvious. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying always. I really like theater. I really like uh, plays. But I could see how this would be affecting in a live setting. Yeah. And then it leads me to the question of why did it need to be adapted at all? Because yeah. it feels like it very much, and I don't know, I haven't seen the stage play or read the, the, um, read the play. I don't know if it's possible to read the play. Um, but you're adapting it to film. It seemed like it just was the stage play on film. Mm-hmm. Like it was in one location. It really read and was blocked like a play. Mm-hmm. Would you agree? Yeah. But they could have done something different with it, right? You're adapting a stage play. Why not give us more backstory? Why not? I understand staying in one location for what you're trying to explore with the character of Charlie. Mm-hmm. Like symbolically using the setting to to convey something emotionally. But we could have had more background into the previous relationship that Ellie and Charlie had. And that might've helped me to believe the way Ellie felt now. Um, you know, as someone who thinks it's okay for a person to choose not to talk to family, mm-hmm. this film kind of acted like it isn't. Yeah. And <laughs> I don't appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, like it didn't give a lot of grace to the way Ellie feels. I don't think. Yeah. And like that's where it just struck a really unrelatable chord for me in the in a in terms of a father child conflict, and I fa- I just found that so grating and yeah. and frustrating. I did think there was complexity in Hong Chao's story. Yeah, complexity and subtlety, and she killed. I mean, the all of the actors do a really good job with what they're given. I, I mm-hmm. won't deny that. Mm-hmm. Um but she was my favorite part. And there was a couple speeches that she has um, that I are probably really heavy hitters in the stage play too. One with the character of Thomas and one with the character of Charlie that I just was really taken with what was being said. And I thought Hong Chao performed it so wonderfully. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, the, my favorite part of the film is this like stuff with a plate. Because I was like, oh, the movie's being subtle. Yay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but for the most part, I thought it was like way. Yeah, it shouted. It shouted at us. Um, and I hated the ending. Yeah. I, I We agree on that for sure. Considering After Sun is looking at some very similar themes and After Sun has like the best ending I've ever seen in a film ever. Mm-hmm. Compare it to this and it's like. It's funny because, yeah, like comparing it to After Sun. 
And how can you not? Like the whale and after some both have endings that will probably stick with me forever on the very opposite ends of the spectrum after sun in a way that is just so profound and incredible the whale in that it's so telegraphed that's a nice that's a nice word (laughs) but i feel like i mean i've seen that ending so many times and so it didn't impact me yeah you know and like it just yeah i don't know i don't want to say too much about it because it's the ending of the film um but it did not work for me. Anything that was working in the film for me was undone by that ending. And I'm like, yeah, no. Yeah. We just looked at each other. We were like, we don't know. This movie's a no. Yeah. But lots of people like it a lot. Yeah. And I get it. It's, it is, it's, you know, pulling on heartstrings and it is an emotional story. And, mm-hmm. you know, for somebody who has a similar relationship with their parent and felt seen in this film, I wouldn't deny them that. But uh, yeah, it, it did not speak to my experience of having a complicated relationship with my dad. Yeah. I mean, like, this whole concept for our show was born out of complicated dad stuff. Mm-hmm. And so this movie should be the movie. Yeah. And, and it, yeah, it just wasn't. Yeah. How did the whale make you feel? Uh, frustrated and disappointed because I feel like there, I feel like there is a good story here. Clearly, there's some really great acting opportunities here and some great characterization to explore, but it just it didn't nail it for me. What about you? Disappointed and unaffected. Yeah, water off the whale's back. <laughs> okay, total shift here. Having some fun this week. We watched Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, a 2022 comedy, uh, drama, crime story, written and directed by Ryan Johnson, who made the best Star Wars movie ever, The Last Jedi. Just kidding. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, And it stars Daniel Craig returning as Benoit Blanc, Edward Norton as Miles Braun, Kate Hudson as Birdie J, Dave Bautista as Duke Cody, Janelle Monae as Andy Brand, Catherine Hahn as Claire DeBella, Leslie Odom Jr. There's a lot of heavy hitters in this, so I'm, I'm naming them all. Leslie Odom Jr. as Lionel Toussaint, uh, Jessica Henwick as Peg, Madeline Klein as Whiskey. Synopsis, famed Southern detective Benoit Blanc travels to Greece for his latest case. So yeah, this is the follow-up in what is shaping up to be an anthology movie series of Knives Out. Um, I've only seen the first Knives Out once in the theater when we originally saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I, I teach it, so I've seen it a lot. Yeah, but I like I remember loving it, thinking it was so much fun, and I was excited to return to this universe and specifically the character Benoit Blanc, which I think is just played awesome, it's so fun. awesomely yeah. by Daniel Craig. What do you think of Last Onion? It was a blast. It was so fun. Yeah, like in no way is this movie changing my life or you know, making me feel any deep feelings, but I just had a lot of fun with it. Like it's, it's a fun cast, fun setting, fun mystery. Um, yeah, it was really, really great. I like the, I mean, I think there's going to be a third and potentially more of these movies, but right now as it stands, glass onion and knives out kind of have a like midsummer hereditary thing going Mm. like, you know, they're made by the same person. and, And in this case, like part of the same universe, but one is very like light Mm-hmm. like it like it, literally it's a bright film and the other's a dark film mm-hmm. um even though they explore similar ideas i really think that's fun and then it becomes which one do you like better 
Yeah. I like, I think I like Glass Onion. I think I like Knives Out. Mm, interesting. Yeah. But, I mean, I really like them both. But, but the, the, I think I think I need to rewatch Knives Out yeah. and then make an informed decision. But I agree with you. Like the word of the day for this film is fun. Yeah. it's It was just an absolute blast to watch this. The kind of complicated thing about it is that it, I feel like it accurately and disappointingly captured the spirit of our times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> With is, like the pandemic stuff or all of it? I mean that, but also just like some of the characters and the kind of people that exist in this film. Yeah, because there's a difference in this where Knives Out is all family. Yeah. Like it's one rich family mm-hmm. and a nurse. Here it's, you know, everybody's individual. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, you can see shades of yourself in certain people, mm-hmm. shades of other people that you like or don't like. And it's just it's yeah. a real troll. It is. But at the same time, it's just this like delectable smorgasbord of very different and fun to watch characters. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, like they 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 all have this connection, which is what brings them together in the film. But it also you can see the dividing lines even you know reading stuff after the fact there's this one scene where the there's this one decision that they all have to make and the way that they represent that decision speaks to their character mm-hmm. their characters just through like a piece of we'll say clothing and it's it's so subtle but it's so brilliant mm-hmm. and so and so well done and i i again you know where there was no subtlety in the whale this movie does revel in some no subtlety. subtlety. <laughs> Very little subtlety <laughs> in the whale. Um, yeah, and you know, I was trying to when I was trying to think of certain characters to talk about uh, to as that were kind of standouts. I just found as I was going through them, I was like, "Oh, it's this person, then this person, and this person, and this person." Like, there's just so many different characters that resonated with me or stuck with me for different reasons. Yeah, and, it's it's an ensemble movie through and through. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I would challenge you. I don't think this movie is subtle. <laughs> like, even with that thing you're talking about um, where the choice they're each making represents them. I don't know that it's subtle, but I think it's purposeful and it's smart. Yeah, yeah I think. Uh, no, you're right. I think in terms of subtle, it's just like it's throwing little things in there that you get it. Like you see it or you don't. And it's it's not like a, a big grander statement or anything that it's trying to say, but it's just like little visual details. That yeah. you might be able to pick on, or you might not, but it does. It doesn't necessarily change the story. Oh, I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Thanks. Yeah. What do you think about pandemic in film? Like, I I felt like when TV shows were doing it, mm-hmm. we all got a little sick of it. <laughs> like it was such a tricky line of do we acknowledge the pandemic within the reality of the show, or do we pretend it never happened? And both of those things, nobody wants to see. Nobody wants to see things where it's like, well, I don't get to live that life. And nobody wants to see things where they're like, well, I have to live that life. Mm-hmm. Are we far enough out from the initial muck of things that it was fun or resonant or painful, but in a useful way to have the pandemic represented in film? Or how did you feel? I mean, I can totally see that being such a huge turnoff for so many people watching this film. Yeah. Like, I, I, I can see that. For me, it was this it was this kind of weird thing that happens where it kind of shoots you back to the time when this film is set, like kind of mid pandemic, like kind of very start of the pandemic. And it just kind of shoots, it it shot me back there and just like, man, 
I remember all this. I remember all the politics around all, all of this stuff. And, uh, but, and, and yeah, exactly. It's just like all the movies and the shows that chose to lean into it and acknowledge it. Now that we're further out from that time of the pandemic, I think that, you know, it was a little bit like, oh, we're doing this again. But then you just kind of like settle into it. It's just like, yeah, this is this is the world and this is how it is. And it didn't bother me that much. It also isn't sustained throughout the whole film. It's only at like the first bit. Yeah. It's in the setup. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that'll, you know, years down the road, if that'll date this film at all or or hinder it at all. Or be an important context. I feel like Ryan Johnson, both in Knives Out in this, is trying, and I think not so subtly personally, mm-hmm. to comment on contemporary discourse. Yeah. Both yeah, yeah. in Knives Out and in this. Um, and I think he's using a pretty flashy, loud genre, the mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, the murder mystery, no less, to, to do that. And so if you, you know, in 10 plus years, go back and look at these films as timestamps, I actually mm-hmm. think that'd be rife for cultural analysis. Yeah. No, I, I agree because there's just like so many things from each of our characters that I I feel are, you know, pandemic aside, speak, like I said, to our times mm-hmm. right now. Very, very accurately. Well, we could look at, you know, specific characters and map them onto real life figures. Big time. Right. Like particularly Miles Braun and um, Duke Cody feel like pretty obvious stand-ins for people in the world right now. Yeah. Um, Ryan Johnson was toying with the idea of having Benoit Blanc have a totally different accent in every film and never comment on why. Oh my God. That'd be so funny. You would like that? I think I would hate it. I think I'd be like, this is dumb. Why are we doing this? (laughs) But in the end, he decided he was sticking with the Southern. Um, I'm really interested. And I want to talk about this with the next film we're going to watch too, in like how movies and like big name movies like big deal movies are being purchased by streamers and then what happens with the theater Mm. so in this case um netflix allowed for glass onion to play in theaters for one week we missed the memo on that Mm -hmm. and we're like oh it'll be in theaters forever and went to go see it the day after it stopped playing Mm -hmm. and so couldn't see it in theaters and even to the point that there's some people who have done um like number crunching and say it would have made over $300 million box office if mm-hmm. it had stayed in theaters. But they were like, Netflix was very particular about this and they only released it in theaters to quote, generate word of mouth and get publicity prior to the streaming debut such to the point that they allowed cinemas to keep 60% of the profit instead of 40% because of them doing this. Mm. So interesting. It is. Because, I mean, it performed really well on Netflix. Like, and that's what they want. They want people on Netflix. They don't want people in the theater. Well, well I, not that they don't want people in the theater, but they, they want people, they want Glass Onion to be the reason people subscribe or keep their subscription to Netflix. Well, that's just, especially Netflix, like who in this past year has kind of been hemorrhaging subscribers and want to entice people to like stay or to come back. Yeah, it's it's a weird, tricky thing because I, I would have loved seeing this in the theater with a crowd. Yeah, I think it would have been really fun. Yeah. And if we had gotten the memo that it was only playing for a week, I think we would have found a way to make it happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I, 
I agree. I mean, I did love watching this at home, like the whole murder mystery aspect of it. It's fun watching that in an environment where we can kind of bounce theories and thoughts off of each other and pause it and have those those quick conversations. I I enjoyed doing that while watching this film, but yeah, there's just something about being in a room. And I feel like this one even would have been even more fun than when we saw knives out in the theater because people are kind of more hip to what this universe is and what, what the whole deal is. Also this one's closed circuit and I love closed circuit. Yeah. Yeah, Like they're all in one space. Yeah. It's so great. Um, Do you also know, I think, you know, you know that the title is a Beatles song. Yeah. Yeah. Did you know that the title of um, knives out is from a Radiohead song? No. Yeah. Brian Johnson too, too cool for school, man. I don't know if it's a lyric or if it's an actual song. No, it's a song. Yeah, it's a song called Knives Out. Um, it's great. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that like the song plays at a point in the film. Like It's just it's great. Um, Stephen Sondheim also makes a little cameo. And he did die, yes. Yeah. Um, I guess that he would host extravagant murder mystery parties. Uh-huh. And part of the inspiration for this film is like that. That's cute. Or for like the like both of the films and so that was a little nod to that which is which is cute it is that's I nice like that. um yeah the uh i really liked i mean i really liked daniel craig in this but janelle monet was a huge standout in this as well yeah she's great yeah or they were great yeah like the and especially that dynamic between janelle monet and daniel craig was was so good um but i also i could watch Edward Norton chew the scenery forever. I loved Edward Norton as like a teen. Yeah. Like I was really into, I mean, obviously Fight Club and American History X. I, I wouldn't say I was into it, but it was one of those like kind of felt like an extreme film at the time where it was like, have you seen American History X? So yeah, I, I've, yeah. I've seen it once. I don't, I've seen Fight Club a lot. Yeah. But I've only seen American History X once. Uh, the Hulk. You ever see the movie Rounders? Yeah. It's intense. Is that the one I'm thinking of? I don't, I don't, I don't know. It's about poker. Oh, maybe not then. There's a movie that's similar, has a similar cover where like all of the adult men had been sexually abused as children. Oh Christ. No, it's not. Rounders. This is about like Matt Damon and Edward Norton playing poker. <laughs> okay. I don't know if I've seen it. Then. <laughs> it's pretty good. Uh, I don't know what movie I'm thinking of. I don't either. It's real. It's really sad. That one. Um, no, I just I just like him, and he hasn't been in a lot lately. So yeah, he fun just, to see him back. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the last in like recent memory, the thing that he had a lot to do in was Birdman, and then oh yeah, yeah, and then since then it's just kind of been popping up in Wes Anderson movies, and it's just like kind of for smaller bits. But I really like Edward Norton. Um, I mean that freaking Red Dragon movie. He was in. I watched that to death as well. Oh, I like that too. I saw that. You showed that to me, but I do like it. Yeah. What do you think about the fact that um, it has a Knives Out mystery on it? Because Ryan Johnson is pissed. Oh, that wasn't his decision. No, he's mad about it. I mean, uh, as a graphic designer, it would look a lot cleaner if it didn't have that on the bottom. And the the title card doesn't. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's that's kind of pee pee poo poo. Like I, I I get it. He said the exact same thing. He said, I understand, but Yeah. I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. 
I I don't think it I don't think it needs it, but I understand why like yeah, marketing man. Marketing man. <laughs> See, your industry is going to analyze this in 10 plus years too. I know. I have to deal with decisions like this all the time at work of like, it would be cool and much cleaner to just put glass onion, but we need to make sure people know that, uh, that it, that it belongs to the knives out universe. So I think we're actually going to have some similar things to talk about with the next film too, in terms of title and in terms of theaters versus streaming. Okay. Well, this knives out super fun, entertaining, compelling, Loved watching it. How to make you feel? Delighted and engaged. Yeah. Uh, simultaneously joyous and horrified. <laughs> yeah, I get that. The next film that we watched was Roald Dahl's Matilda the Musical. See what I'm saying about the title? <laughs> not just Matilda the Musical, not just Roald Dahl's Matilda. Roald Dahl's Matilda the Musical. 2022 film. I think it was released on Christmas Day. Um, on Netflix. It's a comedy drama family film. It's directed by Matthew Warchus. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, written by Dennis Kelly and it is based on the musical written by Dennis Kelly and Tim Minchin which is based on the novel written by Roald Dahl. So we've got a lot of based on based on mm-hmm. going on here. It stars Alicia Weir as Matilda Wormwood, Emma Thompson as Agatha Trunchbull and Lashana Lynch as Miss Honey. Synopsis, an adaptation of the Tony and Olivier award-winning musical. (laughs) Matilda tells the story of an extraordinary girl who, armed with a sharp mind and a vivid imagination, dares to take a stand to change her story with miraculous results. What did you think of Matilda the musical? Uh, You mean, what do I think of Roald Dahl's Matilda the musical? What do you think of (laughs) Roald Dahl's Matilda the musical? I mean, we saw the stage play when it came through Edmonton, and it slapped. I do think you fell asleep in it, though. Did I? Maybe Ashley's dad fell asleep in it. And I just heard that story. And you're just like, Every- no, you know what? Did my mom come to it with us? Mm, uh, yeah. She fell asleep. Yeah. Not you. Okay. Honestly, you both fall asleep in things. So you have a lot of people in your life that <laughs> just fall asleep. asleep yeah. So. But we did see it. It's great. The The music is, was awesome. Perform the uh, all the performances were awesome. It was it was great. So I was looking forward to this. Yeah. Um. I we also both am I correct in saying this? Love the original film, the Danny DeVito film. Yeah. Grew up with Mara Wilson as Matilda, and then Danny DeVito, Rhea Perlman as her parents. Um. So I I think that this acts as like a really fun alternative to that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a nice way to say that. Um. I think it's really cool now that kids kind of have a pick or a couple of options when it comes to Matilda that they could watch this or um, or watch the Danny DeVito film. And I think that this one was really well done. And I think the main thing I kind of felt while we were watching it is that it kind of is reminiscent of the whimsy that Netflix mm-hmm. created with unfortunate a series of unfortunate events. Totally. It just has that kind of vibe. And I like that vibe. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I just, I feel like, yeah, the 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 word that wraps all of that up is whimsy. It just has this understanding of what it's like being a kid and the things that they're going through to a very like 
fictionalized, hyper, hyper fictionalized level, but it's very fun and engaging and intriguing. I feel, especially as a young person, I would have been really into this. Yeah, thinking of the Danny DeVito film, which I love and I grew up on and watched endlessly, that one feels couched in realism. Yeah. Like it's it's quite dark. Oh, yeah. And this one is, sorry, the cat is um, deciding that he wants to be on my chest. Okay. This isn't going to work, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Thompson would like to be part of the show. Do you want to say something, Betty? But this one is, yeah, it's more imagination focused. It's more whimsical. And to your point, while we were watching this, I'm like, I have to text my sister and tell her that like her four-year-old would really like this. Mm-hmm. I think she'd really, really like it. If she likes Home Alone, I think she'd think she'd quite like this. And I, I think the message of this film, even more so than the 90s version, mm-hmm. is pretty potent and important, I think, for a young person to hear, particularly a young girl. Yeah. Like I would love for our niece to grow up with this message. Yeah. No, I agree. And it it definitely gives the viewer more to chew on with this one because we have that sort of, again, very series of unfortunate events side story of the escapologist and the acrobat that's being told simultaneously. And I loved that in the stage play too. I was really yeah. taken with it. It's very and it's it's done really, really well. Um, but it's this whole other level of the film that isn't offered in the 90s version of Matilda, which just, again, it just adds to making this a a lot more of a visually scrumptious package for, for us to consume. Ooh, I like how you said that. Um, thank you. And yeah, I I like, I feel like they took the best elements of the stage play. The music's still here and it's performed just wonderfully. Oh, it's yeah. Those songs rock. Yeah. After we saw the stage play, I was singing them all the time. Yeah. And I still am. No. Yeah. No, it's 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 totally great. I think Emma Thompson is a trunchbull. I mean, Mara Wilson and uh, um, forgive me, I don't know the actors actress's name who played trunchbull in the '90s version. But those are, I feel like those are some big shoes to fill in terms of a on-screen Matilda and trunchbull. Yeah. And I felt Emma Thompson did a great job. Um, do you know who was originally supposed to play the Trunchbull? No. So do you know that in the stage play, traditionally the Trunchbull is played by a male actor? Yeah. It's supposed to be Ray Fiennes. Oh, man. That would have been good. That would have been really yeah. good. I don't know what happened and why he um wasn't. I'm assuming it was just like timing of stuff. But Emma Thompson did a fantastic job. Yeah. She was really, really good. Um, And Lashana Lynch is Miss Honey. Oh man. Like heartbreaking and so gentle and Miss a Honey. Fantastic singer. And I yeah. love Miss Honey from the original. Like I wanted Miss Honey to be my mom. Miss Honey is one of the best characters, characters. ever. So th- like even more than Trunchbull and Matilda, because those are so I feel like in in the I don't know the book super well. I didn't not to brag. And I know I've said this on the show before, but I kind of jumped straight from little kid books into like adult books. And I didn't really do that. (laughs) I didn't really read a lot of the like elementary age books, which I feel like Roald Dahl is. So I didn't read his books, but I did like I liked James and the Giant Peach and I liked Matilda and I liked Willy Wonka. So I like his work, um, but I just didn't really read the book. So I'm not sure how the characters match up there, but in the original film, Matilda and the Trunchbull are so over the top. 
Yeah. And so, um, like specifically iconic in a particular way. Whereas Miss Honey is that like grounding, complex, realistic character. And mm-hmm. I love the original Miss Honey. Yeah. So those were big shoes to fill. Yeah. And she did her own thing with it and it was awesome. And yeah. her singing was my favorite in the film. Yeah. Cause I found, you know, there, there were so many moments in the songs she was singing where, I feel like there was an opportunity for her to just like hold a big grand note at the very end and just like have this really big, like very theatery ending to some of the, some of the music, but she just chose to go for a softer, more subtle, quick ending. And it just kind of spoke to her character and it Mm -hmm. spoke to maybe some internal turmoil or thoughts that she was maybe going through. And it was in those moments where I'm just like, damn, like this is a really, unique and very well performed performance (laughs) (laughs) a well-performed performance yeah she was great did you recognize mrs wormwood i recognize both of the wormwoods and i could not tell you where i i know them from well mrs wormwood is mandy from mandy oh really yeah very different films yeah oh Um, man Interestingly, Mara Wilson was offered a cameo, Hmm. but she would have had to fly to England and it was just for one day and she decided she didn't want to do that. I mean, from like a a carbon footprint standpoint. Uh, This also was like they filmed during the pandemic. Oh, yeah. So I think like like, to take on that risk and to like leave home for one day of shooting. Yeah. um, I I imagine under different circumstances, she probably would have done it. Yeah. which which brings me to the interesting thing of that unlike Glass Onion, which I think was different, I think that that was purchased by Netflix a long time ago, and I believe Ryan Johnson has like a he has to make a certain amount of them for Netflix. Right. This was pre-sold to Netflix because they weren't certain when theaters would open again. Mm. See, and I get that. Like that's strategic of like we have this film we want to make and we want to get it out there no matter what. Mm-hmm. It also feels like the right choice for Netflix. It feels like a... Like I said, it fits right in with Series of Unfortunate Events. Yeah. Like it has a very similar vibe. And it's a great one. Like I said, I wanted to... I still haven't texted my sister, but it's been in my mind of like, hey, you should watch this with your kiddo. Like I think she'd really like it. Mm-hmm. Um, much easier to do at home. Yeah. Right? With a three, almost four-year-old than to take her to the theater. Yeah. I agree. Which I think is pretty cool. I have to say two more quick things. Mm-hmm. Nope, three more quick things. Apologies. I liked, and I know that this probably comes from the stage play more than this, but that it has like nice little homages and um, connections to the original film, but totally does its own thing. Like these are two different things. Oh, yeah. I also think that unlike The Whale, and I know I haven't seen The Whale stage play or read it, this to me justifies being an adaptation of a stage play. Like it does something new while honoring the original stage play and that like it can go even bigger with certain things because it's on film um having seen both the stage play and the film i don't feel like this is just the stage play on film it's not like hamilton on disney plus you know but i definitely like plussed it up in a lot of spots completely yeah but i would still go see the stage play again and i would still watch this movie again I'm curious, like, how often do you think you'd revisit this over the original 90s film? Oh, I honestly, I really like both of them for different reasons. Mm. 
Like I you, friggin' love the music in this. And I, I think the message of this is so different. Like, I don't think this is a spoiler, but one of the first big songs in the movie is called When I Grow Up. And mm. it like one of the the key lines in it is just because you're little, you can do a lot. <laughs> and like <laughs> I'm I'm really little and I've been really <laughs> little my whole life. And I just I I just seeing that even hearing it for the first time when we saw it on stage i was just like honestly it makes me emotional because mm-hmm. i don't feel like that's a message we get all the time um and i just i love the whole message of that song well it's not a message that kids necessarily get to hear a lot either right let's yeah i'm gonna find a couple more lyrics that i oh it gave me a rap song <laughs> not a matilda song um oh it's not is it not when i grow up what's that song is it called naughty naughty i also love that message like sometimes you have to be a little bit naughty um but it's british just naughty naughty like i love just because you find that life's not fair it doesn't mean that you just have to grin and bear it if you always take it on the chin and wear it nothing will change and even if you're little you can do a lot you mustn't let a little thing like little stop you if you sit around and let them get on top you might as well be saying you think that it's okay and that's not right Mm -hmm. like that is so powerful some of the best things i've ever heard said ever and i so love that kids will get that message mm-hmm. and i do and i and i love the little cheekiness then by saying sometimes you have to be a little bit naughty right yeah. like but you know that idea that we have a right to stand up for ourselves and we have a right to stand up for what we think isn't right and that's the message of this movie and i don't feel like that's the message of the original film no that one is more about Matilda finding home. Yeah, it's and like you said, it's just steeped in reality. Yeah, it's it's heavy and it's dark. Whereas here, her parents are so over the top; they don't necessarily seem cruel. Like there's a lot of cruelty in that original one, um, and even like yeah. the chokey is more intense in the original one than it is here. Yeah, well, and there there are some like really fun little kitty moments in the original, but. I feel like you have to sit through a lot of tough, sometimes bleak reality before you start getting to Matilda doing fun kid stuff. The the telekinesis is also a bigger part of the first film than it is this one, I think. Yeah. Because I remember being really taken with that part. There's also, I feel like the original Matilda is kind of entry-level horror. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff in there that I loved as a kid and scared me as a kid that translates into horror now. Oh yeah. This is not. Oh yeah. No, there's like iconic stuff in that original film that still just like gives me stress just thinking about it. Oh yeah. But this leads me to like the last thing I feel like I need to say, which is that Matilda in this particular version, but I was really, really enamored with and identified closely with the Matilda in the original version. And my family always thought that I looked like little Matilda. Like when I was little, I looked like Mara Wilson in Matilda. Right. And Mara Wilson in Mrs. Doubtfire. It's mm. like, there was this like weird identification going on there, but the character of Matilda, particularly in this, which talks about being little and Ash from fantastic Mr. Fox <laughs> are my idols. Nice. Yeah. Like yeah, this yeah. idea of like, I can do it <laughs> because I'm a little. <laughs> yeah. It's okay to be little. That's all I have to say. That's great. I love it. <laughs> How does Ma- Roll Dolls, Matilda the Musical, make you feel? Made me feel filled with whimsy and joy. How about you? 
It made me feel capable of making change, even though I'm little. Oh, that's great. I love that. Okay. Next film that we watched, we went, we returned to Metro Cinema for another sci-fi film. In fact, a action-adventure sci-fi, and dare I say, comedy. (laughs) I think so. Uh, The Fifth Element from 1997. Uh, It was directed by Luc Besson and written by him as well as uh, Robert Mark Kamen. It stars Bruce Willis as Corbin Dallas, Mila Jovovich as Lilu, uh, Gary Oldman as Zorg, Ian Holm as Cornelius, and Chris Tucker as Ruby Road. Synopsis. In a colorful future, a cab driver unwittingly becomes the central figure in the search for a legendary cosmic weapon to keep evil and Mr. Zorg at bay. The synopsis tells you everything you need to know about the vibe of this film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, my history with this movie is like very, it's very foggy. Because I remember watching it once as a kid. And the only reason that I watched it was because I love Die Hard so much. And I'm like, mm. oh, Bruce Willis shooting a gun in this one too. I want to see that. What a boy. But it uh, it didn't stick with me. And I, I I didn't remember anything about it. And you didn't watch it repeatedly, obviously. No, not at all. So this was my second time watching it. Honestly, surprises me a little bit. I know. Me too. <laughs> but what do you think of The Fifth Element? <laughs> I really liked it. I have to be honest. I have to make a comparison like I did with Glass Onion and Knives Out with the Midsommar hereditary thing. In that Blade Runner and the Fifth Element yeah. are very hereditary Midsommar. They're very similar films in many ways. I felt that. And I feel like watching them in the same week. Both at Metro. Both with yeah. our buddy Alex. Both with Alex. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who loves both of them. Like yeah, he yeah. really likes both of those movies. Um, it's weird and amazing. And I kept thinking for me, it was like a cross between The Matrix, mm-hmm. Starship Troopers, with a touch of Josie and the Pussycats. I get all of that because this is like it's 97. So it's it's a precursor to The Matrix. But I start I start I start seeing the groundwork being laid that maybe the Wachowskis were inspired by. Oh, speaking of, I forgot to say this when we were um, talking about Glass Onion, but the actress who played Peg, do you know what she's from? No. She's from the newest Matrix. Oh, she's like the super baby yeah, one. Yeah, she's the one that I had such a big crush on in right. the new Matrix. Yeah. 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 I get it. I she's also in um, one of the new Star Wars movies. Okay. I can't remember which one. Well, if it wasn't Force Awakens, I probably won't Probably remember. don't know. Anyway, yeah, this has, it has like the coolness. There is some cool factor in this, which is Matrixy. But then it has that satire and silliness of Starship Troopers. And then it has the like fashion camp of Josie and the Pussycats. Yeah. Like Zorg feels straight out of Josie and the Pussycats. But there's also just like this, you know, inherent horniness that exists in this too. It's a pretty horny movie. Yeah. Um, Even in moments where it's not necessarily horny, blatantly horny, it still feels horny. (laughs) Yeah. It's a pretty horny movie. Um, did you like it? I did like it. Um, I thought it, I thought it was really fun. And because of just the nature of it, that it, it, it didn't, I felt like it didn't take itself serious. Actually, it, it struck a good balance of taking itself seriously and not taking itself too seriously. Yeah. Um, where it's not like a complete, this is a joke. Yeah. It's like, we know this is a bit silly, but we love it and it's real anyway. 
And I kind of felt that in Starship Troopers too. Totally. Like I felt like there was this very grounded, serious tone, but it's also wrapped up in just like we're killing bugs. Okay. But if you don't know this, this explains the movie so well. So Luc Besson started writing this when he was 15. Oh, that's why it's so horny. (laughs) (laughs) And also like it explains a lot of the very simplistic plot character that I think he then does a lot with by not making it till he was 38. But this is a world he created and a script he started writing when he was a teenager. Honestly, props to him for getting a something he started writing when he was 15 years old up to a big Hollywood production starring Bruce Willis. Oh yeah. I mean, this wasn't the first film he made, right? Like he was already a successful director and you were right. He did make Leon. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so, it's so interesting because Gary Oldman, I guess does not like this movie and didn't like it when he made it either, but he did it as like a favor to Luke Besson. He was like, I sure I'll be in your movie. Um, but Bruce Willis and Mila Jovovich have talked about how it was super fun to make. And like Luke, Besson was super fun to work with. Well, you can like you I feel like you can totally tell, especially between Bruce Willis and Mila Jovovich, like that they are having a good time. By the end of shooting, Luke Besson and Mila Jovovich could speak in the divine language to each other. It's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> the divine language. Like they made it up. It was a um elvish. Well, thing. and I like to there's like little there's little things here that there's very 90s tropes that exist. And you'd expect to exist in this film. And this film plays with that a little bit. And it subverts your expectations. Mm -hmm. Like there's a moment where Bruce Willis kisses Mila Jovovich. And then he cut. And and then there's this whole bit of just like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. I mean, and comparing that to Blade Runner. Exactly. That, that, That was the thing, right? Like having seen Blade Runner and having that really icky scene between Deckard and Rachel. And then seeing a not similar, but kind of similar scene replicated here, but handled replicated. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, I did that on purpose. Um, Seeing it, seeing it here, but handled so much better and in such a subversive cheeky way. Yeah. It seems to be a commentary on what happens in sci-fi films. Yeah. Which I thought was great. And yeah, just seeing, I felt like Bruce Willis just got to cut loose. Like he didn't have to be this stern John McClane holding down the fort kind of guy. He got to be like this very like goofy fun. And I just happened to have a medal of honor kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Alex taught us about the phrase born sexy yesterday while we were at the theater. Did you catch that? I didn't. Oh, you didn't. Okay. I'm obsessed with this. So he told me about it. It's a trope, the born sexy yesterday trope. I, I, he explained it really well, but I went and looked up um, some stuff on the internet So this is the description that I found. Describes a female character who is outwardly an attractive woman, but due to circumstances lacks a mature adult's comprehension of the world around them as though they were born yesterday. So born sexy yesterday. So like Ex Mm. Machina, Splash, this, like anything where they're like kind of like a, like an innocent child, Mm. but they're sexy. My mind immediately went to, is that gross? It is. Yes, it is gross. It's yeah. a problem. Yeah. And this film is like the most cited Born Sexy Yesterday. When I was like looking it up, like this is the example of Born Sexy Yesterday. And this is when I think you did hear me say, oh, would a boy equivalent of that be like Encino Man? Yeah. 
or like George of the Jungle. Brendan Fraser was really into the born sexy yesterday <laughs> for men. He's like, this won't only be for women. Excuse me. Yeah. I mean, and I'm fucking like, I'm, I'm susceptible to it. Cause like, she is sexy. I'm just like, damn, like she, like she's sexy. But I also like think that her arc, like she's badass in her own way. But she needs help because she can't speak English. And that's what she, she doesn't understand the world. Right. Yeah. She, so she's born sexy she's big, yesterday. <laughs> she's big dummy. I just love that term. Born sexy yesterday. Born sexy yesterday. Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting. But yeah, it does make me feel a little icky. As it should. And I think like that's what I love about the way you and I approach film is that like we can critique aspects of a film and still like it and acknowledge aspects of a film. And I mean, it was written by a 15 year old boy, right? So of course he made born 60 yesterday on a more serious note. Should I dye my hair orange? You're looking like you're thinking, no, if you do it, I'm going to dye my hair, my hair blonde. Is that like a threat? Like, you don't (laughs) No, I say that we can be them. If we're going to do this, we're going to go full. We're going to do the full fifth element. I do. do think it'd be great Halloween costumes. Like, so orange is my favorite color and orange is also the new black. Your favorite color. Yeah. Is it not? Yeah. It is. 13 years. You'd think I'd know. Um, and they have some really cool outfits. Are you talking about like the white? Well, so you could, if we were doing this as a Halloween costume, yes, you'd have to have a blonde wig of some kind. Then we just get you, I think it'd be kind of hard to find, but an orange rib tank yeah, and then we cut strips into the back of it, and then you just need black jeans, and then obviously her just like tape outfit's pretty cool, but that's not very appropriate for a teacher. Um, <laughs> so just her like white, like cropped tee with the orange rubber suspenders, right, and then yeah, the, yeah. like gold pants. <laughs> <You'd Yeah. be> so, <laughs> and then you need an orange wig. I so wanted to dye my hair red after seeing Run Lola Run. And this is like doing the same thing for me, but with orange. I'm nice. just like, yeah, hair color. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. So I mentioned earlier in the episode about the sound, the visual effects of Blade Runner holding up. And this was the film I was referencing. Some of them not holding up. I mean, some of them hold up surprisingly well, but there is just some of that mid 90s visual CGI visual effects stuff that does kind of date it a little bit. Um and, and it kind of pulls you out of it watching it now in 20 now well 2023 but yeah i was actually surprised of how much and again i think it's because of the blending of practical and cgi because they, they did use quite a few practical effects and costumes for some of the yeah characters. for the most part it works like there's few enough instances of it being like oh that's the 90s that i was able to keep my focus on it and wasn't pulled yeah. out like there's a couple moments but they're not the whole film I wouldn't say. Yeah, no, I agree. But I think that the biggest thing overall that was my my biggest sort of nitpick with this was that this struggled with some very mid 90s sound mixing issues. Oh, I don't notice that stuff, but was it pretty prominent? Yeah, like just because the, the mix between ambient noise, music and dialogue, it just was a big muddled mess. Like, oh, this is where we said we really wanted subtitles. Yeah, yeah. like it, everything just felt like it was just kind of squashed. And it was just, yeah, very muddy. And I missed, I feel like I missed a lot of dialogue because everything was just all muddied up. You know what you probably missed? What's that? Lilu's full name. Oh, definitely. What is it? 
Lilu Minai Leka Tariba Lamina Tachai Ekbat Desebet. I was going to call you Lilu. <laughs> Very American. Very, yeah. Um, also, is it Ruby Road or Ruby Rod? Oh, man. I thought it was Ruby Rod. Maybe Ruby Rod. Did you like him? Oh, my God. <laughs> For soccer, it was something else in this movie. I feel like you there's there's a scene where Ruby Rod screams a lot and you were laughing so hard. I love a good scream. But do you know what? I was thinking about it. I feel like his character totally nailed what it means to be an influencer today. (laughs) (laughs) And also like. I'm going to be honest, this felt more accurate to what the future might be like to me than Blade Runner. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. These, you know, constant. But do you know what? Movies out and constant manic influencers. But maybe this is what New York is like. And then LA is like Blade Runner. Is Blade Runner set in LA? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what? 100% probably. <laughs> LA is just this hellscape. Who do you think? influenced the creation of the character Ruby Rod. Who do you think they were basing that character off of? Two musicians. Yeah. Uh, Prince, one of them? Yep. Who else kind of talks like that? Also dead. Michael Jackson? Yep. Yeah. Good job. Good job. I, I, I was getting a lot of Prince vibes in terms of the yeah. like androgyny, but like very horny. <laughs> and also like just like that vibe of like, they don't have the same understanding of the world. Like they just put like John Mulaney describes, they just put their hand out and a Diet Coke appears. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you speaking about the way that like this film is the midsummer to Blade Runner's hereditary. I feel like Luke Besson maybe was trolling Blade Runner a little bit, but he specifically was like, nah, it's all going to be in daylight. And this is how he described what he wanted the film to feel like. Cheerfully crazy. Nailed it. Do you think this is a cheerfully crazy film? Oh yeah, no, it, like it's totally nuts, but it was it was fun, and the ridiculousness is what pulls you in, and it's some of the like the bigger set pieces and some of the some of the fun stuff, like that's just like kind of cherry on top as well. I also love that like one of the actors in it was an actor. He was one of the replicants in Blade Runner. Oh really? Who the guy that gets like pushed in the fridge? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's fun. So it feels like a little nod to that. Yeah. No, I love that. He also, um, I showed you Leon when we were in grade twelve. Yeah. Because I had good taste in film then, and I still do today. Yeah. Um. So growing up, Luke Besson's father worked a second job as a taxi driver to be able to like make sure he went to college and stuff, and so he always makes sure there's like a taxi driver in his films oh, and that's why bruce willis is a taxi driver in this like it's it's to honor his father it's really sweet that's really sweet and on a less sweet note his three descriptors for zorg were dandy mm-hmm. nouveau riche hitler rice <laughs> sounds like it was made by a teenage boy <laughs> also you know how sometimes when i look at imdb trivia it'll tell me how many people found something interesting yeah. So I want you to tell me if you find this interesting or not. Mm-hmm. Bruce Willis, Mila Jovovich, Chris Tucker, and Gary Oldman are all left-handed. That's interesting. 120 out of 130 people also found that interesting. There you go. 121 yeah. out of 131 now. Yeah, very nice. Very nice. That is interesting. You're really reflecting on it, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. All left-handed. You don't say. Damn. Yeah. 
No, this was great. I and I love this is the thing that I love about Metro is like it through its programming, you never know what's gonna crop up. And I don't think that Fifth Element was very much on our radar at all. This Fifth Element is a movie that I've always wanted to see, yeah. but not enough to see it. Exactly. Like I I did not see myself searching for Fifth Element no. at home at all. But I've always kind of, when I've seen it, its cover or like I come across it on streaming, I'm like, oh yeah, I want to see that one day. I also had no clue what the title meant, but I got it very quickly. Oh I was, yeah. I was they just like, they oh. let you know what the Fifth Element is. And I was like, oh, doy. Of course. I also think the ending is the most perfect best 90s ending ever and we can't speak to it. But if you've seen it, wink, wink, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. No, this was great. So much fun. How to make you feel? Zanely entertained. Oh, great. You? I like that. Yeah. Just I, I felt along for this ridiculous ride from beginning to end. Yeah. It was, it was just fun. We had a lot of fun movies this week. Yeah. Speaking of. Let's wrap it up. This was the last movie we watched in 2022. And like the first mystery pick we've watched in a long time. It's been a couple weeks. Yeah. What was the last mystery pick we watched? Man, it, it would have been mine. And you don't know what it was. I don't even know. Like, like I said, this week was loaded. I mean, on top of these six films, we also rewatched Banshees of, Banshees of Inner Sharon. We rewatched Nope. Like, But we did this because you were trying to reach 300 movies for the year. This is true. And I'd like, I'd love for don't some do folks this. <laughs> to weigh in on whether counting short films in your letterbox diary should count as a film. Short films and comedy specials. And comedy specials, yeah. I mean, we covered Rathaniel on this show, which for all intents and purposes is a comedy special. This is true. The last mystery pick was The Lost World Jurassic Park. Oh, that was my last mystery movie yeah, pick of 2022? Year, yeah. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, you said let's watch a mystery pick because we were going to go see The Fablemans, but once again we were foiled by the theater. Yeah, thinking, you know, oh, Fablemans, like this is very award baity. It'll be in the theaters for a while. Pfft. The only place at like 9.30 p.m. In on New downtown. Year's Eve. Yeah. It's, it was playing in North Edmonton Cineplex, only in the only matinees. City Center Landmark, which is downtown. And like, I'm not driving downtown on New Year's Eve. Yeah. Um, or Spruce Grove. Yeah. So none of the above. So then you said pick a mystery pick. And I was like, that's a lot of friggin' pressure to pick the last movie of the year. I think I did a good job. Yeah, you nailed it. So... I was very lucky. This is a hard film to find and we don't pirate films because we don't know how. Um, but also we just don't. One of my friends ordered this recently, our friend Lori from uh, Queer Horror Cult and lent it to me. 1992 drama horror mystery Ghost Watch. Ooh. Ooh. It was directed by Leslie Manning and written by Stephen Volk. It stars Michael Parkinson as himself, Sarah Green as herself, Mike Smith as himself, Craig Charles as himself, <laughs> and Jillian Bevan as Dr. Lynn Pascow, Brid Benning, Benin as Pamela Early, Michelle Wesson as Suzanne Early, and Sherry Wesson as Kim Early. Synopsis. The BBC gives over a whole evening to an investigation into the supernatural. Four respected presenters and a camera crew attempt to discover the truth behind the most haunted house in Britain, expecting a lighthearted scare or two and probably the uncovering of a hoax. They think they are in control of the situation. They think they are safe. The viewers settle down and decide to watch for a laugh. 90 minutes later, the BBC and the country was changed and the consequences are still felt today. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the, that's the Hot stats. It's not on IMDb. So I'll give a little bit of context for people who don't know about Ghostwatch. And I was shocked you didn't. Not a thing about it. So like I thought you'd be like, yeah, Ghostwatch when it came up, but you didn't know what it was. So Ghostwatch was very much akin to the Orson Welles War of the Worlds radio broadcast where this was presented. It did say it was fictional at the start, but because at the time you had to watch things live or record them on your VCR, a lot of people missed the very quick part at the beginning where it said that it wasn't real or not. I don't even think it said it wasn't real. It just said it was written by someone, which like documentaries are written by people. And it was presented um, for all intents and purposes as a live broadcast investigation into this haunted house and people watched it and people thought it was real. Mm-hmm. And it was really hard to find for a really long time because of everything that happened afterwards. Um, and now it's kind of there There are DVD versions of it now that you can get. Um, so I've been wanting to watch this forever and uh, picked it as the last movie of the year. What did you think of Ghostwatch? Yeah, like I said, never heard of it. I thought this was brilliant. I thought, I mean, I'm such a sucker for that sort of unconventional and you know they wouldn't be using this word then but the viral sort of Mm. storytelling uh like i think the whole story behind war of the worlds like having that whole radio play as if it was really real and that was really happening unbelievable so the fact that they were doing this and playing it off as this real 90 minute thing and that they were having recognizable people from the bbc as a part of it Mm -hmm. Just to add to the, you know, <laughs> the legitimacy of mm-hmm. what was being presented. And then ato- aside from all of that, the story itself, this is the stuff that scares me. This, <laughs> yeah. this is the stuff that just gets me. So much, so many times while we were watching, you went, oh, no. Or yeah. you just like, you made a motion with your hands to be like, stop it. <laughs> well, and the thing is, like... The Conjuring, I really like the first two Conjuring films. Mm-hmm. And I think that where I get really scared is, again, and this is the word of the week, subtlety. Mm-hmm. It's in using words to describe what something looks like or how something happened. Because whatever I'm conjuring up in my head is way scarier than you showing me something. Mm-hmm. It makes it way more, <laughs> my stupid brain makes it way more sinister and way more frightening than if you're gonna if you're gonna show me the thing, and this does this throughout throughout most of it. I would say I know I think it does it the whole way through. It never quite shows the monster. Yeah, yeah, which is smart. And when it chooses to show you anything, yeah, it's a blink and you'll miss it kind of thing. And you hate that, and I hate. And that. I'm like, fuck you. Well, hate <laughs> and love, right? Like this is the the hidden hidden ghosts, like in Haunting of Hill House, right? Oh. Where when you finally see it, oh. you're like, dear God, yeah. And like there were moments in this film where I saw it and you didn't, and you saw it and I didn't. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this is still true because this was on IMDb, but there have been eight sightings of pipes that have been found Stop. in the film. But the producer director Leslie Manning says there are thirteen. Thirteen ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I, I'm sure by now that's probably dated and all 13 have been found, but. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just, and it uses so many, I, you know, I was thinking of words to describe it and I put the word tropes, but I feel like at this point it wasn't even a trope yet, but it, they have since become tropes in subsequent 
ghost stories mm-hmm. and movies. And th- they use these techniques to build the suspense, to build the terror, and to just <laughs> really get under your skin. And it's done so effectively and so, I, I keep using this word, so brilliantly that, of course, movies like Paranormal Activity and The Conjuring. And Blair Witch Project. Blair Witch and, Project yeah. used it years after this came out. What do you think it would have been like to see this in 1992 live? Well, I was thinking that the when when the credits were rolling, I'm just like, for sure there was people that were like, oh, this is all bullshit. I don't believe it. But there's no this. internet to get on and be like, this is fake. Yeah, because right? I can totally, I can also see the other side of it where there's probably people just like hopping on the phone of like, are you seeing this? Yeah, like get, start, turn on your TV, right? Yeah, like something is happening at this house. Yeah, and then hearing in the, in the aftermath, like it was just what, like, what, what do they say? Like 11 million people yeah. tuned in to watch this? It's a lot of people. And then it kind of resulted in some, I mean, one person died as a part of this. So many other people were like, panicked and afraid and freaking out and it just it has this it had this grip on its audience and this effect on them that led to some pretty serious things also i mean that's serious it's also something that feels like it'd be so difficult to replicate now because in 92 and i mean even up until i'm going to say like the early 2000s when cable was the way it was many of us all watched things at the same time. And if you missed it, yeah. you missed it, right? Like you'd be like, I remember not wanting to work on, thir- like have my work schedule on Thursday nights because then I couldn't watch Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. Right. Or, or like or if you missed TGI Friday when you were in elementary school, like you, you just, you missed it. Or like, yeah, you got to stay up late to watch the Friends finale. And I also remember it being more okay to be spoilery too then because it was like, well, I missed it, so I'm not going to see it. So yeah. just tell me what and happened. Like, and like TV on DVD was not a thing yet. So. Yeah. And you were like, it's not like, oh, well, just wait. It's going to be on streaming like this time next year. Don't say anything. Yeah. Right. Or I've been meaning to watch it. Don't say anything. Yeah. yeah because yeah. just like, if you missed it, you missed it. Um, so one of the things that led to this being so misunderstood as real, and I mean, part of it is I think they wanted it to be. They had a couple things to to cover their bases and say they didn't want it to be. But there was a film that was on on the channel ITV that I guess people were like everybody was watching that. Mm-hmm. And it finished after this had already started. And then people tuned into this after the film had finished, meaning they missed the very beginning, mm. which also was so much more common in the 90s and early 2000s where like you would just tune into something late and just watch it from that point on. Yeah. Right. As opposed to being like, Oh, I'll just like catch it on the PVR tomorrow. Right? Yeah. Um, so really, really interesting. And then also like they did, you could call that number and the first thing it would, they would do is tell you that this was fictional, but so many people called in that the lines got tied up making people believe it was real. <laughs> so it was, right. you know, counterintuitive in that way or, or what they wanted. I don't know. I just, I'm upset. Yeah. I'm obsessed with it. Well, and um, just to your comment too, I mean, I feel it works with War of the Worlds because everybody had radio and mm-hmm. that was the thing that connected everybody. And then in the early 90s, television was the thing that connected everybody. So it's got to happen on the internet now. Yeah, yeah. And like, I'm trying to think of something, if something exists, like something that came to mind was we're all going to the World's Fair. But that wasn't presented as real. No. Um, or yeah, like it, I feel like, or like, uh, what's it called? Searching with John Cho. 
But again, that was a film. It's not. Yeah, but like, I'm just thinking of devices that that you could tell. It would have a story to be like through. a YouTube video that goes viral, and like it, it wouldn't be time sensitive, yeah. right? It would have to be something that people share. I mean, I feel like creepy pastas kind of get there, and there are some YouTube videos that they freak me out. Mm. We like watched a thing once that was like the most disturbing videos on YouTube that we don't know if they're real or not. Mm. Mm-hmm. Did not like. <laughs> yeah. But I did like, but I did not like. Um, but I'm ready to be duped. Yeah. I, I want to be a part of this. I would love to see something like this exist in our world and be effective. Yeah, like if it's just some crazy 24-hour live stream happening on YouTube. Because that's the thing too. It needs mm-hmm. to be accessible. It can't be behind a subscription or a paywall or something like that. It needs to be something everybody can have access to. And not everybody has access to the internet necessarily. Well, both War of the Worlds and this were on like like BBC News. And then like, I guess it wasn't. It was in a spot where usually they showed drama programs. So that they're right. also like, it's a channel and a spot where drama usually is. But I guess people could think that this is like, um, like they've like cut off what was actually there to show this, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I just feel like you have to outclever the most clever people on the internet to make it happen. Because I feel like if you're doing it on the internet, there's so many trolls and people that are so just so savvy and sneaky on the internet to so quickly debunk whatever you're doing. Somebody should try to do it though. Yeah. I'd like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love this. So the actor who played Dr. Pasco mm-hmm. when she, she was great. She was so good. She was the most convincing part of this whole yeah. thing. And that's because she was actually an actor, right? Yeah. And some of the cheesiness of like the earlies and the news reporters it works because that's what cheesy live news was like. Yeah. And what, like, we don't think that the girls or the mom are actors, so they would be awkward on camera, right? Mm-hmm. But when the actress who played Dr. Pascoe got home that night, she had a message on her phone from Judy Dench. Whoa. Because they were friends, and Judy oh. Dench got mad at her, jokingly chastised her for inter- inadvertently spoiling her ability to enjoyment because she knew her and therefore knew it was acting. Incredible. I love that though. Where it was like, so it's fun. your fault that I knew this wasn't real because <laughs> I know who you really are. Yeah. Um, super, super fun. Also, the guy who made this, what a troll. He wanted to include high pitched noises that only animals could hear so that people's animals would go wild at home. But dang. And you wouldn't know why, but like they wouldn't let him do that. That's, that's great. Do um, you know what this reminded me of? Like just one of these shows where people can call in and it's live. Um, did you ever watch? I think it was on YTV around the holidays they had this show called santa calls (laughs) no and it was literally just this show of santa like at the north pole around christmas time you could just call him and you could call in and it was just him like taking calls from kids ever call in i think i wanted to but i never did it was like a 1-800 number and my parents were like that costs money yeah you you don't even think you can watch these kids with money do it (laughs) (laughs) i have uh two questions for you yeah yeah one is when I realized you didn't know what Ghostwatch was, I, I told you the backstory of it. Are you glad that I did that? Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I think that... Uh, like you wouldn't have thought it was real. No. And I think that my perception of it might have been like watching it now with like a 2022 Just be lens. like, this is bad? Yeah. Like, like, why, like why is this so kind of hammy yeah. and dorky? So you're, you're glad you had that context? Yeah. I, I, I am. Here's my second question. Would you watch it again? 
I would. Yeah. But I want to watch it with somebody who's never seen it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Uh, somebody that I follow on Letterboxd watches this every Halloween <laughs> because it, it aired brilliant. on October 31st, right? Which That's also great. was brilliant because it's kind of a like spooky night already, right? Yeah. Metro should do that. Halloween. I wonder if you can, though. Like, this is a hard, it's still hard to get. Like, you have to special order it. Mm. But that would be cool. It Metro, be cool. if anyone's listening, Ghost Watch on Halloween, we'd come. Yeah. There's, yeah. Like I said off the top, I just think that there is a brilliance I so admire about wanting to create a cultural moment through horror, essentially. I, I agree. I'm obsessed with media that presents itself as real or as a found document and that people interpret in that way. Like, I mm-hmm. like that about Blair Witch. I, I like it about the War of the Worlds radio well, broadcast. And like, it we- also scares me. Yeah, I mean, and like right now, especially right now, news just sucks. Like, like, and we're so inundated with it. Bring us the most haunted house in Britain. We're ready. Yeah, just. This is interesting, too, because I think we probably would know more about it if we were in Britain. Yeah. Right, like this didn't happen here. Yeah. But I'm really glad that you got to see it and that you hadn't known what it was and that you think I did a good job of our last film of 2022. Excellent job. And thanks, Lori, for lending it. Yeah. How did um, Ghostwatch make you feel? Just gave me the Wiggins. Yeah. Yeah, but in the, in the best way. And um, I did say I needed to watch Bob's Burgers after. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it also just make me so grateful that this exists because I love... I'll say it again and again. I love this kind of media. What about you? I'm just obsessed with it. I was a little bit scared. It also taught me the term nine o'clock watershed. Did do, you know about that? Do, do tell. It's an English term, like in Britain, that is the time in the evening after which television programs that are not considered suitable for children may be shown. But this aired at 930. And so some people were mad that it was like too the, close the, the to the cutoff. watershed. Damn. Because kids saw it, but it was after the nine o'clock watershed. And they even reference that in the film, right? Where he like chastises a parent. He's like, we passed the nine o'clock watershed. Like, yeah, why yeah. aren't they in bed? Get your kids to bed. It seems like they're kind of trying to tell the viewer that. Yeah. Um, I'm obsessed. I'm just obsessed. I think this is so cool. It's so great. If you're listening and you have more things like this that we don't know about, please send them our yeah, way because we love them. Yeah. Man, learning so many new things today the what's past the 9 9 p.m watershed yeah and born sexy yesterday born sexy yesterday great great terms and like genuinely this freaked me out yeah like and i'm scared of ghosty stuff and it never got as into possession once it gets possessiony i get less scared there's some of that but not a ton of it mostly ghosty and the ghosty scares me that stuff gets me more than i think it gets you the possession stuff yeah i just don't believe it that's fair that's okay Still I'm haven't. scared of ghosts, not of demons. Uh, yeah, I don't like either. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk about bad dads and rad dads. All right. The uh, the last ones of 2022. I know. I, <laughs> I struggle with bad dad because there was a few like top tier choices, I thought. Okay. Um, but I went with Miles Braun from Glass oh, Onion. Oh, we went in different directions. Who'd you pick? The Trench That's who I was going to pick too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like the Trunchbull, but I thought about Miles Braun, but I just think the Trunchbull has like an everlasting bad dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, like in the pantheon of bad dads, the Trunchbull has to be in there. Whereas I don't think Miles Braun would be. Yeah, I I even typed out a whole thing for the Trunchbull, and then I was like, mm. that's. I was kind of on both of them, honestly, but I just thought the Trunchbull inched out because, like, she's a bully, she's a menace, she's petty, she's immature. Yeah, but then acts as if she's better than and like uses her power. I, she's just despicable. Yeah. And, Miles Braun is too, but in more of an insidious way, whereas like the Trunchbull is just like overtly, unabashedly despicable. Yeah. And I feel like Miles Braun, like it's he's despicable, but in a different way. I mean, like he's the one percent pee pee poo poo. He and he's manipulative, which makes him dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, nail in the coffin, he's selfish. And he's also blatantly ignorant mm-hmm. about stuff and i think that that comes from him being the one percent pee pee poo poo um but yeah like i just think the the miles braun because it is just one percent pee pee poo poo we have to deal with fewer of them throughout our life i mean they do impact all of us in pretty major ways this but is true but i feel like day to day the trench bowls, we are more likely yeah. to run into a trench bowl yeah. than a miles braun so I agree with you. All right. The Trunchbull. Agatha Trunchbull. Step off. Get out of here. <laughs> okay. Rad dad. I feel like we, we might have inverted. One. I don't know. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, okay. You go first. I put Benoit Blanc. Oh, yeah. We are And inverted. you did Miss Honey? I did Miss yeah. Honey. <laughs> that's funny. I literally, the two, I was just like, I can't put the Trunchbull and Miss Honey. I, that's what I did. <laughs> I'm like, I can't put Trunchbull and Miss Honey, so I'll do Miles Braun. That's hilarious. Because I was like, Roald Dahl's Matilda the Musical is not that great of a film. It, yeah. is, it is. It's really good, but it's not flashy, okay? But it's it has some very important things to say about important people in our life. And that's why it has such a bad dad and such a rad dad. I mean, Miss Honey is a radder dad than Benoit Blanc. I just was like, I shouldn't put two from Roald Dahl's Matilda I mean, the shit. Musical. Well, we tried to avoid. We ended up doing it anyway. So... <laughs> But Benoit Blanc does have rad dad energy. Would you agree? He does. Uh, like Especially in the, from what I recall in this film over uh, Knives Out. Yeah. It's, it's there in Knives Out too, but like because he's part of the mystery, but by this film we already know who he is. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, who can deny that Miss Honey is the raddest dad in the entire world? I mean, she's so supportive. She's loving. She's kind. She recognizes her own faults and ways that she can grow. Yeah. Um, not only from them, but with them yeah um and she's just resilient yeah she's amazing yeah i was gonna put her i just yeah i guess <laughs> roll dolls matilda the musical sweeps the last week of yeah you would think the whale would have been our like parental movie of the week uh-uh roll dolls matilda the musical and there we will go. keep saying it's full title forever so um miss honey your, your dad. dad oh so lovely all right let's rad wreck it so there's so much I've read, so much we've read about the discourse around bodies and fat bodies and embodiment in the whale um, and representations of different bodies. And I don't feel like we are the best people to speak on it. Um, so what I wanted to do is ra- rad a book that I think um, is really fantastic by Roxanne Gay. Not happy, Roxanne Gay, that you... Um, had the article that I think I would have liked to quote a little bit from behind a paywall, but I do really love your book hunger. 
as if she's listening to this. Um, so Roxanne Gay's book Hunger is about her own um, experience of living with her body and the cultural, social, political experiences she has as a fat woman. Um, she's also a woman of color and she's a queer woman. And the book is, it's quite intense and I would check out like some content warnings before reading it. Um, but it is one of the most impactful books I have ever read. Um, and aside from how it looks at bodies, I think that's a really, really important part of it. But the book itself is one of the best things I have ever read. Um, and it's a memoir. It's really, really, really fantastic. So Hunger by Roxanne Gay is the rad wreck of the week. Um, that's all I got for you. Hell yeah. 2023, baby. All right. 2022. That's a wrap. Um, thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Until then, follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Tell us why you love Blade Runner so much. Tell uh, us if you liked The Whale. What were your top movies of 2022? Do you agree with us? Do you disagree with us? Do you hate us? How horny does The Fifth Element make you? Yeah, how horny does The Fifth Element make you? <laughs> um, you can get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual letterboxed accounts. Usernames are in the show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever. If you could drop us a rating, a review, or a follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from, and share us out with a friend. Let's start the new year off with a bang. Brighten somebody's day by sharing our little show out and introducing them to the world that is Bad Dad, Rad Dad. But that is going to do it for these two replicants this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. I remember. Not all dads have to be bad. Bye.